Welcome back to the Traders Point Church of Christ podcast, and thank you for joining us. Each week, we open up the Bible for just a few minutes and discuss God's Word together. We discuss its meaning and the ways in which we can apply it in our walk as followers of Christ. If you'd like more information about the Traders Point Church of Christ, you can visit our website at traderspointchurch.org, and you can follow us on Facebook and YouTube as well. If you haven't yet subscribed to the podcast, please take just a second to do that so you can stay up to date on all of the content that's put out on this channel. Thanks again for joining us, and enjoy today's conversation. Hello, welcome back to the podcast. I want to thank everyone for joining us today. Uh, We began our study through the Gospel of Mark a couple weeks ago, and we're going to continue that study today. We're going to be in chapter 3. We're going to continue talking about Mark's account of Jesus' life and all that he is doing at this point in his ministries. We talked about, when we began our study, just how Mark is written a little bit differently, even though, again, it's considered one of the synoptic gospels. That's the term that you'll hear used to describe Matthew, Mark, and Luke because they do all cover a similar version of Jesus' life from a similar perspective. However, each have their own unique ways of viewing some of the things that he does, and they record different aspects of his life. And Mark, even of those three, is perhaps a little bit different in the way that it's written, certainly the way that it begins. It doesn't begin with Jesus' birth the way that Matthew and Luke do. It picks up with Jesus as a full-grown man, beginning his ministry relatively quickly, and it gets into the heart of his ministry uh, very quickly. And so that's where we are as we begin chapter 3. We're, we're in the midst of, of Jesus' ministry, and we're going to continue to talk about some of the things that he is doing. Now, Jeremy, maybe as we begin, I think it's important to maybe recap a little bit, especially from the end of chapter 2, some of the things we talked about last week, because when we pick up in chapter 3, we see again a very similar conflict that exists between Jesus and the Pharisees that we left off with at the end of chapter 2. Yeah, I mean, the conflict is the key component, right? Because, I mean, we talked about it a little bit, probably in both talking about chapter 1 and chapter 2, that, uh, you know, th- that Jesus is, he kind of hits a couple of controversial things in in, in chapter 2, and he's going to raise some the ire, if you will, from the scribes of Pharisees. And we've talked a little bit about that, and you see that kind of happening, as you made mention, at the end of of chapter 2, specifically uh, regarding the Sabbath. That's going to be the very beginning of chapter 3. But what you're going to see differently in chapter 3 is now this opposition is right out in in front of us, right? I mean, and it's interesting. I mean, you think about really now how quickly things are moving. I mean, we're just in chapter three, and I mean Jesus is in the middle of it. I mean yeah. he he is yeah. in the he's in the middle of it right now, and we're just in chapter three. And certainly in comparison to Matthew and Luke, by the time Jesus is in the middle of it, I mean you're you're fairly deep into the book. So you know it's just interesting the way that Mark is is going about it, and it really has a pretty impressive flow to it, right? Mm-hmm. Because what we're talked about at the very end of chapter two is a great segue into chapter three these issues that he's having with the scribes and Pharisees, they start to balloon themselves in a pretty massive way that even, as we'll talk about as we get into chapter 3, envelop not just the scribes and the Pharisees, but uh, other Jews, and even his own family, yeah. uh, you know, yeah. that there's going to you know be some issues. Yeah, and the conflict at the beginning of chapter 3 
uh, centers around this man with a withered hand is how he's described. And and so a little bit different from how we ended chapter 2, the, the issue that the Pharisees had at that point was Jesus and his followers picking grain and eating on the Sabbath day. And they're saying, hold on, you can't work on the Sabbath, you can't do that. Now we get into chapter 3, and, and Jesus now is going to heal someone on the Sabbath and that is going to cause the problem among the Pharisees this time because certainly that would have to go against everything that the Sabbath stands for. You can't, you can't do something like that on the Sabbath day, Jesus. Now, what, what's interesting about this, and I, this shows up multiple times, and it really speaks to the heart of the Pharisees, is they are standing there as Jesus performs a miracle right in front of their eyes. He takes this man who has a withered hand, and he restores it like new, just like his other hand. And the Pharisees almost aren't fazed by that at all. They just immediately go to, you can't do that on the Sabbath day. And you can do it any other day, that's fine, whatever. Do, you know, Go do your miracles some other time, but you can't do it on the Sabbath day. It's remarkable to me how someone could be in a situation like that and not be in complete awe of what Jesus is doing. But that is something that we see the Pharisees doing on many occasions, they are blinded to the amazing things that Jesus is doing and saying by their desire to stop him and their hatred for him and for everything that he stands for. And so it's really comical is a bad word to use because of the weight of the situation. But if it wasn't so serious, it would it would be comical to think about someone witnessing what they're witnessing and brushing that to the side and talking about working on the Sabbath day. And because what Jesus is doing here is remarkable, it is miraculous in every way, and they don't seem phased by it at all. Yeah, I mean, blinded is the, is the perfect word. Whether you want to throw anger or whether you certainly want to use jealousy, I mean, there there's no question that they're blinded by it. And you know what's interesting, especially, you know, the there are a lot of similarities between what happens at the very end of chapter 2 and what happens at the beginning of chapter 3. But there are some interesting differences. You know, you have, you know, it seems at the end of chapter 2 that Jesus and his disciples are picking grain, and the Pharisees take notice of that. That, mm-hmm. that It's happening, and they take notice of it, and they raise a concern about that. But yet here, Mark tells us at the beginning of chapter 3, that this isn't a situation that they're just Jesus does this and they take notice of it. Right. They're premeditating yeah. in their thought <laughs> processes, right? They yeah. that Jesus is there. They see this man, and the text tells us there in verse two, they watched him closely whether he would heal on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. Not, as you said, to be awed by him or or to believe on him uh, or to even question where his power would come from, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, which wouldn't be a bad question, certainly with good intentions. Uh, but yet they're 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 looking now. They're in this situation. They're like, well, this grain, you know, the guy who picked grain, and he's going to do something again, and we're going to get him. And here's this poor guy with a withered hand. I bet that Jesus character is going to come in and heal him. And once he does, I mean, we're going to be all over him. And that's exactly what happened. Yeah, that's I right. mean, once Jesus heals this man. Uh, in a compassionate way. I yeah. mean, it's all compassion, all love, all showcasing who he is, but yet the Pharisees take that, and then very quickly, uh, immediately, that word pops up again, yeah, right? right? Immediately, they are plotting against him on how to get rid of him. Yeah, and it's it, what's remarkable is is the polarizing effect that this continues to have, 
because we see the effect that it's having on the Pharisees. It's driving them to hatred, and they're wanting to stop him. But then immediately following this this story at the beginning of chapter 3, we see that even more people begin following Jesus as they hear about the things that he's doing. And, and so it's this very polarizing effect that Jesus is having where there are always going to be people who refuse to accept who he is and they reject him and they despise him. And at the same time, there are going to be people who recognize he is the Son of God as he claims to be, and they want to follow him, and they want to be a part of what he's doing and what he's saying. And the the crowds become so large. I mean, there's even a phrase here that they've got to keep a boat nearby because they're afraid that the multitudes might crush him. I mean, it's just this picture of just so many people. He almost can't turn around because he's just swarmed by people on every side, so much so that the disciples are beginning to fear for his safety because of that. I mean, you think about, you know, when celebrities or or athletes, you know, famous professional athletes or something try and move about in normal everyday life, and they just get swarmed by paparazzi and fans. And, you know, it's almost that kind of a picture to an extreme where there's just people everywhere, so much so that his even ability to move about becomes hindered. And so they have to begin making plans just to be able to move about appropriately so that he can continue doing what he's here to do, continue to teach, continue to perform these miracles, continue to bring more people in. Plans now have to be made to accommodate the the big crowds of people that are following them. Yeah, I mean, think about how difficult it would be if you were uh, just walking around town and a dozen people yeah. were just following you everywhere you went. I mean, just 12 people, or, or maybe dozens of people, maybe 50 people pressing on you and moving about. I mean, even, you know, in the, and it's a great example that, you know, from a celebrity or from a, you know, an athlete or something, a lot of times we'll see those pictures of them going somewhere and there'll be people pressing them around, pressing around. But, you know, maybe it's a, a dozen or right. a couple of dozen people trying to get, you know, near them and they're, you know, clearing the path. But yet with Jesus, and we read about you know him moving about in the Gospels, it wasn't a dozen or a couple of dozens. At times, it wasn't even hundreds. It was thousands of people mm-hmm. following him around wherever he went. Yeah. And we know that because of the, you know, the times that he had to, to feed them because they wouldn't even leave him to eat themselves. Yeah. And you start to imagine the, the everyday life that he would have had, and not just following him to listen, pressing on him, uh, trying to touch him that Mark makes mention of, that they're trying to touch him. So now imagine hundreds of people, not just following behind you, but trying to touch you. And what kind of everyday existence this would have been for him at this time. And yet at the same time, he doesn't have just that to deal with. He's also now got the Pharisees plotting mm-hmm. uh, you know, behind the scenes to, as Mark will use the phrase in verse 6, that they might destroy him. And they will try seemingly every single day to go about doing that. Yeah, that, that's where the, the example of you know celebrity in our society begins to break down because most of the time people are swarming them because they, they just want something from them. They don't also have people chasing after them, trying to hurt them at the same time. Yeah, all of that all happening. Of that, hap- that doesn't all happen at the same time in our society. But I mean, that's exactly what's happening with mm-hmm. Jesus. He has, he has people who who want to be around him, want to hear from him, want something from him, and he has to be on guard against those that are trying to do harm to him or trying to trap him in some way. And I think that environment 
is it's appropriate that that Mark follows up, you know, these stories with the appointment of the 12 apostles that Jesus is going to have around him. There is a sense in which there there's a logical next step in this process that that Jesus recognizes that that he needs men around him to assist him with what he's doing and he needs to equip them, he needs to prepare them. And of course, Jesus knows the huge responsibility that's going to be laid on their shoulders after he's gone. They don't necessarily understand all of that at this point. But certainly when you picture the environment around Jesus and then get the story of Jesus appointing the 12, that makes very logical sense when you think about everything that's going on and where this is heading. Those men need to be there with Jesus. Jesus needs them with him. And so this is a very appropriate place for Mark to include this story. And it's a really important thing, you know, for Jesus. I mean, we've talked about already how quickly Mark is moving, right? He's, he's moving through the story of Jesus very, very quickly. But yet he often, when he needs to, he's going to take time, yeah. you know, in certain areas. And listen, we're three chapters in. And in every single chapter, chapter 1, chapter 2, and now chapter 3, Mark has made mention of these men Mm -hmm. close to him. Now, he broke it up with Peter, Andrew, James, and John in chapter 1, Matthew in chapter 2, and now the listing of of everyone here in chapter 3. But I I found that interesting as I was reading it, you know, again a little bit ago that, you know, now this is the third time that Mark is pointing that out. And when you begin to think, he has spent a lot of time painting the picture of just the, the the sheer amount of people around him, mm-hmm. you know, the amount of people that he would have around him. And he's now he's brought up the point that there are people in opposition to him. Certainly there are people curious about him, but not just is there people in opposition to him. He has disciples. He has men close. He has followers. And now you have all of these things, you know, converging now together. Yeah, and, the, and these 12 men they're going to be given some very serious responsibility. I mean, Mark tells us here that Jesus is giving them the power to heal the sick and giving them the power to cast out demons. And so so he, in essence, is passing on some of what he is doing now to these men so that they, too, have the ability to do these things. And we know that the, the, the point of the miracles that Jesus is doing and that his apostles will do is to prove who he is and to prove where he has came from and what he's here to do. And now these men are going to be a part of that mission as well. They too are going to aid in proving who Jesus is by the power that he is going to give them. And, and certainly that's going to continue on again even after he is gone. They're going to continue to to help people better understand the gospel message and they're going to use the power of miracles in, in a similar fashion that Jesus has to solidify that message and to let people know that this truly is from God. And so this is no small thing that Jesus is doing here. This is a very important passage of Scripture to show that this power is being passed along to these 12 men. And there's a really important purpose behind these things, and they're not to be taken lightly, but they have a purpose now as well to to showcase Jesus as the Son of God. What allows them now to reach out to these big crowds of people in a very different kind of way. I mean, Jesus was one person now in the in the face of hundreds, uh, if not thousands of people, but now you multiply that, 
you know, to, you know, now you have these other 12 men, certainly in what they do and what they say pointing to Jesus, but it spreads them out. And, and it'd be, again, you have that point, even in verse 20, right after the, you know, the selection of these, you have this picture of the multitude. We've already said, as you made mention early on in the chapter, the crowds are so large, they've got to kind of have a boat at the ready because they're, they're fearful that he's going to be crushed. And then you have in verse 20, that this multitude came together and, and they're around him so much that they, they couldn't even eat bread. I mean, they couldn't even eat. And, and I mean, this now becomes, I mean, a scene that I think, yeah. is, I think is difficult for us to really grasp. But Mark is really pushing this visual, mm-hmm. I think, more than what you get. You get mentions of the multitudes and, and certainly the other Gospels as well, but he is really pushing this narrative that that Jesus was around people all the time, and there were people curious about him, and there were people in opposition to him, and there were people on his side, but there were people all the time around him. Yeah, I can, you know, I know Jesus. Obviously, he he knew exactly what was going to happen here. I mean, this is the Son of God that we're talking about. The the twelve around him had to be overwhelmed at times. I mean, we we certainly see as Jesus tried to share with them, uh, especially some of the future things that are going to happen around his death and and everything that's going to surround that. That they were challenged in understanding that, and that was overwhelming to them. But but I have to imagine just the crowds and just the scene around Jesus had to be overwhelming to these men. No matter how much Jesus tried to prepare them for what they were going to do, uh, just human nature is that would be be overwhelming. And then, you know, you continue on, and and what you were just referencing there is these crowds continue to press up against them, and now they're getting these accusations thrown out towards Jesus that he has Beelzebub, that this guy must be from Satan, you know, that, that makes more logical sense to these people than him being the son of God that he claims to be. That, no, he's not the son of God. He's actually from from Satan because he's casting out these demons. So, therefore, he must be from Satan. And Jesus, in the way that he combats that accusation, I mean, it's it's laughable the way that how easily he's able to combat that. And yet, again, in the minds of these people— he cannot be the Son of God. He cannot be the Messiah. That just can't be true. So therefore, we're going to throw every other accusation at him that we can possibly come up with because it can't be that. And so even these relatively silly ones, if you will, that he's from Satan, even though Jesus quickly recognizes if if I'm from Satan, I wouldn't be casting out these demons. That's not the way Satan would do things. That's dividing Satan in that sense. But they're just intent on it has to be something else. He has to be someone other than who he's claiming to be. Yeah, and I mean, it, you know, it's interesting. I mean, he, he gives almost some teaching here at the end of the chapter that, you know, you look, you're looking at it now, and it, it's, it, it would be almost impossible for them to grasp, you know, what Jesus is really talking about. Now, we can read it today and be yeah. able to grab hold of it, but you think about the crowds and even the teaching that he does about Satan and, uh, and the control that he's going to maintain over Satan. He, he teaches about that. That would have been a very difficult for them to grab hold of. Yeah. But even at the very end of the chapter, when his, you know, his mother and his brothers are there and, and they're wanting to see him, and he takes that opportunity to, you know, to, to do 
some teaching about you know those that do the you know the will of God that you know my relationship with them is more special it is more unique than this physical relationships that we have and and, and really that it, it provides a great segue into you know what will be chapter 4 where it, it's a, a bulk of teaching now it, it's parable after parable after parable and, and it, it it's teaching they could grab hold of. I mean, that's the idea of the parable. But yet here, it's something we can get and we yeah. can grab and we can understand because we know the whole story. But man, I mean, what you'd have to think, or they they couldn't have been able to grab hold of uh, of that level of teaching. But still, for us, mm-hmm. really important principle and application. Well, and I think before we stop for today, I think just kind of along those lines. You know, there's even that those couple of verses there, verses 28 and 29, where where this idea of an unpardonable sin is thrown about, and you know that that oftentimes over the years has been something where where controversy has come up or disagreement has has arisen. But I think to your point, Jesus is not trying to complicate things for us; he's trying to simplify things for us. And so, even though some of his teaching certainly is challenging. And there perhaps is even some challenge here, although I think when you read it again in context and recognizing what he's talking about, what he's saying here is that he is he's his purpose is to forgive sins. That's why he has come to earth. We talked about that when we began in Mark chapter 1 and how Matthew introduces him in Matthew chapter 1. He has a very clear and distinct purpose to come to forgive, sin, to forgive sins, to be the Savior of of the world. And there is no sin that can't be forgiven. However, if you're in the position of these Pharisees where you are just blaspheming Jesus and you are you are cursing him and you are rejecting him at every turn, there's no forgiveness to be found there. There's no there's no forgiveness found if that's going to be your attitude, if that's going to be your mindset. And so I think recognizing what you were talking about just a second ago that Jesus is trying to simplify things for us. We need to keep that in mind, not just here with this unpardonable sin, but in other areas as well. Jesus is not trying to complicate things. He's trying to simplify things. That's what the parables do for us. They provide, they take complex teaching and they simplify it for us so that we can understand it. That, that's what Jesus, in essence, is trying to do. So with that, let's go ahead and put a, put a bow on today. We'll stop there at the end of chapter 3, and then we will pick up Uh, in chapter 4 next week as we begin a conversation around some parables.